You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series Intentional Discipleship for Normal People. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Before we dive into the sixth week of our series on discipleship, just let me give you a brief uh, thank you for last week. We did one thing here last week. And no, it wasn't VBS. A lot of you are thinking, yes, we did. That was all we did last week. No, actually, last week we were involved in doing one thing, making disciples of all nations. Many ethnicities were here, and every night we were sowing the seed of the gospel and then helping children and adults obey that gospel. So there was evangelism occurring, And there was discipleship occurring. That's really one thing we do. It's called making disciples. So last week, you thought it was VBS. It was actually making disciples. And I want to thank so many of you for the ways you contributed. It was great to see so many green shirts here every night, as well as all the children. And so many of our youth who were wearing green shirts and helping, kind of giving back to what they had done in the years past. So God's just so faithful and good to this church. I just want to thank Him. And I want to thank you for your generosity as well. As a result of your commitment, the children of VBS last week, I think through their families, of course, but we'll just credit the children with this at this point, okay? But over $6,000 came in through our VBS offering just through the kids. We had some of you adults who offered to match certain gifts. And so we were, our goal was uh, $10,000 to help one of our partners in Haiti, Courtney Johnson, purchase a boat by which she could access hard-to-reach spots on the island. It was an audacious goal, but we said at the beginning of the week, Courtney was here, she talked to us on Sunday, and Becky led the team, and the workers were great, and just kind of keeping that vision before us. Well, by the end of the week, uh, here's the picture that was taken outside the building with most of the VBS kids and adults, uh, and the check they're holding was going to go to Courtney. It was for $10,018.44. That's a lot of money for a bunch of kids to raise, isn't it? Amen. Praise the Lord. And so we had Courtney on the phone the last night, and she began to weep and cry as we told her the great news. And Becky was so right when she told the crowd that was gathered that uh, as we think about delivering you know, this money to Courtney for that boat, every time she does access a hard-to-reach spot on that island, uh, First Family had a part in that. Now, we're not looking for credit, or we don't need to be, that to be known, but it's good to know that you have a part in the gospel getting to those who've never heard. Amen? So I want to thank you for your your help and just your generosity as we continue to um, make God's passion our mission, all right? Thank you very much for that. Well, I think that's a good segue into this series because last week was just a very intensive week of discipleship. It's one thing we do, and there are two parts to it, sowing the seed and then helping those who uh, have responded to the seed to obey. That went on last week, and we're looking at how that happens in a church. What is discipleship like For normal people. How does it look? What do we do? What's involved in that? We've been using 2 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 as our root verses. Here are those verses for us. I won't show you all that we've talked about in the past. I'll let you go back to our website or to our app. You can hear the messages there that kind of break uh, these two verses. They break them apart almost phrase by phrase. In some cases, word by word. Today we're going to look just at this phrase... 
entrust to faithful men. And what does it mean, okay? Because we've looked at the word entrust. We've kind of spent a whole week just at that word. We spent a whole week on the word faithful. But today we're going to kind of back up a little bit and say, okay, what is the point of this core phrase in this sentence? And that's what this phrase is, by the way. This is the only imperative in the verse. The word entrust is the only imperative verb. And so this really forms the real essence of Paul's command to Timothy. So let's read the entire set of verses together out loud, and then we'll just focus on understanding what did he mean when he said to entrust the faithful men. How is that actually done? Okay? Together, read with me, church, would you? You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this phrase that Paul uses to command Timothy under the Holy Spirit's inspiration to entrust what he's been given to faithful men. How is that done? Like, is there a place that we can look to say, oh, well, there's the process illustrated or defined or modeled? Well, there is. It's the life of Christ. And this morning, I want to show you through the book of Mark You'll be surprised how quickly I'll take you through the whole book. I want you to see in the book of Mark how Jesus actually models this phrase. He takes what was given to him by the Father and he entrusts it to the faithful men that he selected with this confidence that they would then pass it on to others. So let's start that journey, can we? Mark chapter 1, verse uh, 14 is where we're going to begin. I've chosen the Gospel of Mark because it's the shortest and most succinct of the Gospels, and it gives us a good overview of the life of Christ, how he entrusted what the Father gave him into 12 men. And so we're going to kind of make our way through this book basically in four main sections to show you what I consider to be the four stages of discipleship, all right? You might want to get a snapshot of this chart. It will form the basis for what we're going to talk about today. And as I said in my prayer, I think you'll feel two things today. You will feel at some point like, wow, that's obvious. It's just in the Word. It's kind of laid out in Scripture. Mark does it most succinctly and probably in the way that's most obvious. At the same time, you're going to feel like, wow, this is overwhelming. Okay? So I want you to be willing to embrace both ends of that emotional spectrum today. Because the Holy Spirit will use both to move us towards action, all right? Four stages of discipleship that are modeled by Christ that I think show us the process by which this still happens today. It begins in Mark 1.14. Open your Bibles there and make sure you're kind of following with me. I'll take you through several chapters and several verses just in a row. And you'll, you'll just kind of need to follow along and you'll see these stages unfold, okay? By the way, Tanner will make this chart available on some kind of platform afterwards if you want to see more of it and print it or something he can. If your picture on your phone is not good enough, just he'll make it available to you. Here's Mark 1.14. Now, after John was arrested, so this is months probably into his ministry to some degree, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
So here we see Jesus now announcing his ministry, and on the heels of announcing his ministry of preaching the kingdom of God, which consists of these two key words, repent and believe, he calls along his side other folks to, in essence, watch what he's doing. You'll see this in verse 16, 17, 18, and 19 of chapter 1. Look with me. He's passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Simon and Andrew. And so he says to them in verse 17, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They left their nets, and then going a little further, verse 19 says, he sees James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, also known as the sons of thunder. He says to them likewise, follow me, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, when we read, when we read that in our culture, we think that's awfully strange. Who could walk up to somebody and say, follow me, a complete stranger, and they just leave their jobs and, and do that? We need to read this within the culture and history of the Jewish nation. It wasn't strange for young men to be called out by a rabbi to follow them. In fact, in some ways it was expected. And so when Jesus would walk along the sea and see men who were making their living in fishing, or perhaps we'll see later Levi uh, in his profession, he was calling them to a different profession. And Jewish men weren't surprised at this. It was kind of a known fact that you would attach yourself to a rabbi in the area and learn from him. Remember how Nicodemus called Jesus a rabbi? So Jesus Christ was doing what teachers and rabbis do. He was the Son of God, of course, Emmanuel, God with us. So uh, it was different, but they weren't all aware of that at the time. And so, so he's calling for people to follow him. That's what rabbis did. So it wasn't as strange in their culture as you may read it today, which is why when they heard that, they said, that's the rabbi to which I will attach myself. I'll learn from him. That's what their disciple is. It means learner. And so they follow Jesus. This is stage one in which these beginning followers got high direction from the leader. That's what L stands for. In stage one, the leader's uh, habit activity is high direction and low explanation. The disciple, that's what D stands for in this stage, has high confidence, but really low competence. So if you want to try to put yourself in this position, think about when you sign on for a brand new job. You're like gung-ho, but you're not sure exactly what you'll be doing. You don't even know maybe where your cubicle is. You're not sure how it's going to work. Or, but you have a lot of confidence, but your skills may be a little low. And so you have to take a lot of instruction. And sometimes there's not a lot of explanation. It's just, I need you to do this and this. And so you just kind of obey orders for a while. This is what we know in our families to be true. When your kids are first born, they have high, you give them high direction and low what? Explanation. You gradually teach them things, but at first they can't handle all, and they don't need to know all the whys yet, but they sure need to obey all the whats at times, right? And so you give them a lot of direction. This is really what's going on in stage one. So just understand, as Jesus begins his ministry, he does call to himself a number of people not just 12, by the way. He actually calls a number of people to, at the beginning. He selects 12 later, but initially, there are a number of folks, and they're just watching him. Notice how this is seen throughout these first couple of chapters. I'll run you through a few verses, okay? You follow me? Look at 125. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, and here we see it was Jesus who did the work. I just want to show you phrases that lean towards Christ being 
the one who's really doing the bulk of all the work here. Look at 131. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Look at 134. He healed many who were sick. Look at 141. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. Uh, in chapter 2, we see the disciples there again watching. Uh, he calls Matthew or Levi. Um, and so as, this, as these first couple of chapters, you see Jesus just really doing everything. They're watching, they're following, they're learning by his model. I believe this first stage took about 8 to 12 months. In fact, just to show you how quickly Mark covers things, Mark 1.14, when you read that verse, it's actually the first four to five chapters of the Gospel of John. So John takes four to five chapters to cover what Mark covers in 13 verses. So when you get to the, about the middle of chapter 3 or so, it's been about 8 to 12 months, and the disciples have mainly just watched what Jesus was doing. They've answered the call. We'll follow. We want to learn from you. Let's watch what you're doing. But beginning in three, I would say about nine, something changes. Look at chapter three, verse nine. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Now he's beginning to engage them. Excuse me. He's beginning to engage them and helping him do some things. This is a logistical task. That's all it is. But he's bringing them more into the loop now. Notice how this verse follows verse 8, which says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing. You see that? So the emphasis, the focus on Christ. He's doing their watching, but now he's going to bring them into a new stage. And I believe stage 2 begins in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. When out of the large group that was following him, he actually selects 12. Now, this is recorded for us in Luke chapter 6 as well. And I would recommend that as you think about this process of discipleship and these stages, if you don't have a book called The Harmony of the Gospels, I would encourage you to pick that up. It will kind of help identify some timelines here of when these stages kind of started and stopped. We can't be scientifically definitive and accurate on every single moment. We can get some general pictures, though. And at this point, there are a number of people following him. But now he knows he has to move to a different stage in which he gives a select few greater access into his life. So he prays all night, and the next day he selects 12. This is what happens in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now notice why he's calling them into a closer relationship. Verse 14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. That's present tense. Church, don't, don't miss this. He's calling them to a deeper relationship. He's saying, I'm going to give you greater accessibility to, to what I'm doing. Not just what I'm doing, but to who I am. I'm going to give you kind of a backstage access pass. You're going to get to see things that are both the inside and outside, good and bad, up and down. That's the present tense, but watch this. And that he might send them out to preach. Suddenly now we get a sense of what the vision is of Christ with these 12. Out of the large group, he brings 12 to the inner circle, so to speak, or a closer circle, I should say, knowing that he would send them out to preach, which is what he started doing in 114. So in stage two, what we have here is high accessibility, much more so than stage one, we have a, 
again, uh, high example. There's still a lot of doing by Jesus. Uh, the confidence, however, begins to go down. In the first stage, they're excited to be asked to join. They're pumped. Like, yeah, I want to I be discipled by you. But as they get an inside look, as they get closer access, they begin to realize, wow, it's not always a bed of roses. This is a tough assignment. And so what typically happens to disciples in stage two is they have a dip in their confidence. Let me show you what I'm talking about here in the scriptures. As he brings the 12 closer, as they get kind of a backstage pass, as they get closer accessibility, they also experience some difficult things. First of all, they have to realize that they're going to be hearing things that are hard to understand. Notice in chapter 4, verse 33. Here it says that with many parables, he spoke to the, uh, the word to them, speaking of the crowds. In fact, he didn't speak anything to them without a parable. But notice this last phrase, Mark four thirty four. But privately to his own disciples, the ones I think he called out in chapter 3, verse 13, those 12, He explained everything. Suddenly, explanation gets a little deeper. There's a smaller group. They have closer proximity, so they get more explanation. And why do they get more explanation? Because they're in a greater degree of difficulty of discipleship. Notice what follows next. Not only are they hearing things that need processed, they're hearing difficult things, but they're experiencing difficult things. As these chapters unfold, this is where... Uh, they go out in the boat, chapter 4, verse 35, and they're with Jesus. He goes to sleep, and a big storm arises, and they try to take care of it on their own, but they can't. And so they, they wake him up, and they ask him, don't you care about us? <laughs> he calms the waves, calms the wind, and then he says to them, why are you so afraid? Which I think is a very crazy question. I would have said, I got, I got one good reason, the storm. That's why I was afraid. I thought I was going to drown, right? But he shows them that in difficult circumstances, don't look at your surroundings, look at the Savior. He says, you, you have no faith. They were filled with fear, but yet they did say to themselves, look at the end of verse 41, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? So they're getting this closer look. They're getting greater accessibility to Jesus. How does he handle things? What makes this whole thing work? It's not only a storm of nature that they are experiencing with him, one of those down times. They're also experiencing a storm of, we might call it a storm of people. In this same time frame, Jesus goes back to Nazareth. And it's there, it's one of the few towns in his ministry where he did not do many mighty works, the Bible says. Why? Because in his own town, the people did not recognize who he was. They disregarded his claims to be the Messiah. They had no faith. So the disciples are seeing this. They're seeing, in in, in essence, Jesus kind of being run out of his hometown. So this is how this stage ends. Think about it. You're invited to join Jesus as a disciple You're gung-ho, and then you realize, wow, following Jesus means storms and dislike, misinterpretation, rejection. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. That's why in this stage, you typically have disciples with lower confidence, and the tendency is to want to quit right here. To kind of say, well, I didn't sign up for this. You ever had it on that new job? You go in, you're like, man, this is great. Or maybe that new board you're going to serve on, or maybe a new team you're going to play on, or just some new environment in general. 
Yeah, let's do that. So you sign up, then you get the details. You're like, well, I didn't sign up for this, did I? <laughs> and suddenly you want to back out. This is very similar to that. So just kind of be aware of this. That stage one, a lot of direction, a little explanation. As stage two comes, though, they begin to get greater accessibility, a smaller circle, and you get more explanation because you need it because you realize things are a lot tougher than I realize. But Jesus is still doing they're still helping. They're still watching. He's still modeling. Well, on the hills of Nazareth, and him being rejected there, I believe stage three begins. Here's why. Because when confidence is low, this is a very counterintuitive type of thinking, but watch what Jesus does. When the confidence is low, what does Jesus do? Jesus does not say, let's go back to class and have more discussion. Jesus says, you know what? You need to go do something and get some small victories. You need to actually do what you've been seeing me do. And to be frank with you, that's the way to build someone's confidence. Is to let them experience ministry instead of just watching perhaps you and then seeing the, maybe perhaps the discouragement from it or the hard time. Say, you know, I want you to do this now and let them get some short-term victories, so to speak. I think that's what he does here. Look at chapter 6, verse 7. On the hills of stage two, here's how he enters stage three with these 12. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. It's almost as if his reasoning is this. Well, if I'm rejected, why don't you go and do this? There's, there's, there's more than me here, right? You guys can do this. Now, we know he also sent out 72 others. But this one records here the 12. He sends them out. And what do they do? Verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Wow, this is so obviously beautiful. What did Jesus do in Mark 1.14? Say it to me, church. He preached the kingdom of God that they should do what? Repent. So what are they going to do now when they're sent out? Well, let's just do what Jesus did. They go out preaching that people should repent. This was not like a rocket science brain surgery kind of process that he thought of. It's really, it's, it's so practically plain. He did some things and they watched. He did some things and they helped. Then he said, now I want you to do it and I will help you. Now remember, this isn't just in a 20-minute time frame. It's not just in a week. We're talking about months and, and, and at least three years for Jesus with these disciples. But I love the way Mark, there's, there's specific kind of benchmarks. There's, there's noticeable time frames in which things happened. You can kind of begin to see how Jesus entrusted to these 12 the mission that his father had given him. So he sends the 12 out. They do what Jesus did. They proclaim that people should repent. Now notice how suddenly he begins helping them. Some key verses here. He sends them out. Verse 30 of chapter 6. Follow along with me, okay? They came back and they told him all that they had done and taught. Of course, they have some discussion there. They're going to a place to rest. But as they're doing that, they're surrounded and crowded out by people who were hungry. People maybe they had preached to, they had taught, but there's this crowd now of people. And so they say, they're hungry, what shall we do? And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. In stage one, he would have just given them something to eat, right? But now he says to them an odd phrase, hey, can you give them something to eat? And if they're like me, and they probably were to some degree, they're like you, here's what they would have thought. Uh, I don't have enough food for like five people, much less a thousand or more. Like, how do you mean to feed this many people? But he's giving them an opportunity now to do what he's done. 
it's, it's, it's really just, it's amazingly beautiful. Of course, they say back to him, we can't do that. We don't have that kind of money. He says, how many loaves do you have? And they end up having five and then, of course, two fish. And they're thinking, you know, in other gospels we know that they said, what good does that do? And so he has the people sit down. And then, look what he does. He breaks the loaves and the fish. He blesses it. And then look at verse 41. He gave them to the disciples to set before the people. In the most biblical sense, Jesus didn't feed the 5,000. The disciples did. Now, Jesus empowered it and made it happen. But if you're part of a group of 100 or so or 10, and you're in a group of 5,000, you don't know who's over the hill maybe making this happen. You're just saying, James is giving me some food. James, you the man. Thanks, buddy. I mean, you're hungry, you're starving, you're amidst this people who are without food. And these 12 guys are giving it out. You're thinking, man, these disciples, I mean, they're the ones you're hashtagging about, right? They're the ones you're kind of uh, tagging on Facebook. They're the ones you're tweeting about. John, he's cool. He has food. We'll travel, you know. I mean, this is what's happening. Jesus is willing and able to let them not only do the ministry, but in some ways receive the credit. I mean, this is just a beautiful picture of, of Christ entrusting to his men this ministry. You see that again in chapter 8. Look at verse 6. Here is another feeding, 4,000. He gives to the disciples and they set it before the people. But it's not only in feeding the people. He also puts them out on their own in other difficult situations beyond just the one involving food. Look at chapter 6, verse 45. Kind of back up for a moment. Here is another instance of Christ dealing with nature on the water. But notice that in verse 45 that he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. How is that different than the, than the scenario in chapter 4? In chapter 4, he went with them, didn't he? He got in the boat, they went together and he slept. But in this one, what does he say? Guys, get in the boat by yourself. I'll meet you over there. That's a stage 3 thinking. Like, you don't need me the whole time. And so they go and they meet some kind of storm. They're a little worried. And they see him walking on the water. They think it's a ghost and they yell for their life. And, and so you can read other accounts of this in, in Luke as well as Matthew. But just be aware. You see what Jesus is doing in this stage. He is actually getting them ready to do this on their own. And he's in small incremental ways helping them practice. This is what stage three is. You do, I help. And it's here that the competencies of the disciple they begin to grow this is how their confidence is built back and here of course it's high discussion from the leader and lower direction in fact let me show you an interesting verse here chapter 9 of Mark verse 33 in the middle of stage 3 here's what is happening on a number of occasions verse 33 says that when they came to Capernaum and he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, they were discussing who would be the greatest. And why do you think they were discussing that? Because they had just come off the two miracles, at least, when they were like the heroes. We fed 5,000, we fed 4,000, man, they were hashtagging about us, we were the center of social media in Jerusalem, we were, we were the bomb, right? And then he says, so, you want to talk about who's the greatest? And he had to kind of keep their pride in check. I think this does show us that one of the traps of stage three is we, begin to, we can begin to think it's really about us, and it's not, but God is entrusting to us more responsibility, but it's really not about us. 
So just be aware of that. Kind of a, a, a side note there, one of the traps to be aware of in stage three. I think as you begin to see this, though, you see that he ups the explanation. He ups the conversation. There's a ton of discussion happening here about what they're to do when they are doing the ministry. Further proof for this is in the Gospels of John and Luke. Listen very carefully. Stage three in those Gospels begins, I'm not sure it begins, but it includes the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 15, 16, and 17, in which Jesus lays out for his disciples the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That another comforter is to come after I'm gone. See, he's kind of prepping them for what's going to happen. He'll bring all things to your remembrance. In other words, he will help you do what you need to do after I'm gone physically. It's also the part about not being troubled and trusting in God. It also includes, stage three does, his uh, last supper, in which he washes their feet. And he says to them, as I have washed your feet, so you should wash the feet of others. There's a lot of conversation in stage three. And so do you see what Jesus Christ is doing? Over a three-year period, he's inviting these people in as followers. He's selecting from that group ones to give greater accessibility to. He's then showing them and modeling for them what they should do. And then he's assuring them he will help them do it when he's gone. By the way, just to confirm this, it was in stage three that Jesus said to his disciples this. He said, after I'm gone, you will do greater things than these. If you're a disciple and you've been in stage one and two, you've seen the storm calmed, you've seen people healed, multitudes fed, what are you thinking about right now? We're going to do greater things than these? I mean, do you see what Christ is doing? We won't go into the definition of that phrase right now. I just want you to know, he is getting them ready to do what he's been doing. This is, in essence, discipleship occurring right in front of our eyes in a three-year period. Well, I believe the stage three ends when Jesus' life ends. He finishes out Passion Week. He goes to the cross. He's crucified. He dies and he's buried. What now? I believe the beginning of Mark 16 marks the beginning of stage four. We're not going to read all about that except to say this, that as stage four kind of concludes at least in the recorded scripture, it's in verse 19. He comes, he's raised back to life. He spends 40 days with the disciples and others. He gives his last words, his final commands. Look at verse 19 and 20, sum this up for us in the book of Mark. Here's stage four. This is the disciples doing and Christ watching. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God and they went out and preached everywhere. Now why would they do that? Because that's exactly what Jesus did beginning in Mark 1.14. He came and preached the kingdom of God. People should repent and believe and he did this in all the villages. So with him gone, they just did what they watched their master do. We'll go around and we'll preach. And they begin to carry forth the mission of God. It says here, the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. 
And if you read what follows in the New Testament, hear this very carefully, church. There's a lot of information we just kind of process or we're trying to process. Listen very carefully. If you read the remainder of the New Testament from Acts forward, it is actually a fulfillment of this, of this verse and others like it. They did preach everywhere. They went to Jerusalem, and those 11 or 12 became 70, and then those 70 became 3,000, called Pentecost. And then the dispersion came in Acts 8, and those 3,000 plus who were ever saved uh, in, those, in those months, probably, probably 10,000 or, or more, they scattered through the known world there. And somehow in that, a church in Antioch sprouted up. Church in Antioch had heard about a guy named Paul, so they asked Paul to join them after he got saved through a guy named Barnabas. And they discipled Paul, and then the Holy Spirit led the church at Antioch to send out Paul and Barnabas, who evangelized and discipled the whole known world. You realize that? City to city, Lystra, Derby, Iconium, planted churches, uh, saw believers come to Christ, established elders. When those regions were reached, Paul set sail for Rome and eventually... Spain, whether he got there or not, we can debate till the Lord comes back. But Paul's eyes was on what he knew Christ left him to do. Make disciples of all nations. And you may wonder, did that ever happen? Look at Romans 16.26, just as a teaser. Romans 16.26, would you? Because I do believe in that first century, the completion of the Great Commission is recorded for us. It doesn't mean that we don't participate in it still, but look what Paul says here in Romans 16, 26. He begins in 25 by uh, worshiping and proclaiming praise to the Lord. Now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God. See, that was God's command even before Christ came. Christ came on mission from the Father. He established His mission to be continued through these 12 men. They did their jobs to get the gospel to every nation. And the point of that was to bring about the obedience of faith. Not just knowing about Jesus, but obeying Jesus. And Paul here, in, in a lot of ways, asserts that the news about Jesus had reached every nation. Have you ever thought about the amazing progress, uh, uh, not even a good word, the, the, the exponential progress that that must represent for a few believers over a period of 60 to 70 years to be able to say the gospel has reached every nation? What's that called, Todd? That's just the process of discipleship. It's when churches realize this is what we do. This is the one thing we do. It may look like VBS. It may look like our small groups. It may look like church services. But the, the end of all of that is the making disciples of all nations. That has two parts to it. We sow the seed in evangelism. And we mature people in obedience, yes. But it's one thing we do. It's one coin we're investing. It's one set of currents that we have, right? Two sides of the coin, evangelism, discipleship. But it's one thing, making disciples. And when the church takes that seriously, radical change can happen. 
When a church takes seriously the command to obey Jesus and then to help someone else learn to obey Jesus. Because I believe discipleship necessarily and inherently includes multiplication. When a church takes that seriously, that's when we begin to see tremendous, even exponential progress with the gospel. I think the New Testament is a bearing out of that, a a picture of that. That just overloaded you with information, I know. I just overwhelmed you with like, wow. And so you're feeling the overwhelmed feeling right now. But you know what you're also thinking? I guarantee it. You're thinking, how did I miss that though? It's pretty obvious. I mean, that's just the New Testament. (laughs) And sometimes we're afraid just to admit what we know the New Testament teaches. That Christ came on the mission of God, entrusted it eventually to 12 people, and said, entrust this to other faithful men. That's, that's really the New Testament. So yeah, you're feeling two things. Like, that's obvious, but wow, that's overwhelming. I think the Holy Spirit can use both of those today to help us move forward as a church and continue to keep discipleship, making disciples, as a, as a strong aim, as a laser-like focus. Just by way of definition, I just want to encourage you. This process, I've kind of defined it in this way. It's a timetable transfer of transformational truth. Notice what it's not. It's not a timetable transfer of information, okay? (laughs) But it's truth that actually transforms the way you live, i.e. obedience. And it's also a, a transfer that's done in a timetable fashion. Now, this may be three years for some of you. More than likely, it's going to be longer at times and shorter at others. Uh, I don't think the Bible gives us a prescription on time. I think the best scenario is an 18-year one. Why do you say that, Todd? Because that's how you disciple your kids. And I'm a firm believer that if, if and when we disciple our own children first, that's just a great start in the Great Commission. Let's not overlook our own roof in trying to go to the nations. I'm totally for the nations. I think everyone here would know that without any problem. I'm for God's heart for the globe. But sometimes we, we, we think about the globe and we miss the ones right under our roof that actually are the most available and accessible. I mean, they already have the inside scoop in your home, right? They're living with you. So, so let's just start there for sure. And that's about an 18-year cycle in which you do this very thing. You do and they watch. Everyone's like, yeah, we know about those years. (laughs) And then at a certain point, you do and they help. That's a little bit of breath of fresh air. Like, man, I'm so glad he's mowing the grass now. I'm so glad they're cleaning up the dishes. I'm so glad I got a little help around here. Then at some point, they actually do and you help. And we're like, man, praise Jesus for these years, right? And then you get to the years where you're like, they're doing and you're just watching. Like, man, hallelujah, right? It's about an 18-year deal. Now, see, when I just described that to you, none of you argued against that. You're like, yeah, Todd, that's just raising kids. That's also raising disciples. And if the church, listen, with, with conviction, listen, if the church would embrace spiritually this process as easily as we do naturally, we would make incredible progress with the gospel. But we seem to balk at this spiritually. Well, I don't know. I need to give someone greater access to my life. Let them inside and, and all these questions about, well, how long it's going to take and I'm too busy. And 
The truth is, this works spiritually just like it works physically. And Jesus modeled it for us. So, it's been very informative today. It's been quite, in some ways, analytical. I've walked you through the book of Mark, giving the references. Here's a chart that kind of helps you see it. But the goal is for you to know and be smarter. The goal is for you to understand so we can obey together. And I just want to call you as a church to living a discipling lifestyle. Being discipled and discipling someone. Because this is the one thing we do, church. And in all transparency and vulnerability, churches that don't do this, churches that don't make the mission of God their mission, churches that don't really embrace that Christ has called us to replicate and multiply, to invest and to entrust to faithful men and women. Like, like this is what he's called us to do, to extend it just beyond ourselves. If, if that's not really our aim, to make sure that people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue get to hear the gospel and follow Christ, accept his invitation, and learn how to obey him. If that's not our aim, then let's stop being a church. Actually, let's stop pretending to be a church. Let's close the doors. You save your money. Please conserve your energy. Spend it somewhere else. Because we don't need to, to spend years pretending to do something that we're really not doing. Are you with me? This is really the earmark of a church. Can we be about the mission of God, the discipling of all nations? Now, that happens in a number of ways. Like I said earlier, different venues, through different personalities and different gifts. Yes, I would say amen to all of that. But it all has to be pointed at the end game that Christ left us with. Go and make disciples of all nations. So I'm calling you pointedly and blatantly to a lifestyle of discipleship. A timetable transfer of transformational truth that's been left to us to someone else who then will transfer transfer it to someone else who then will transfer it to someone else. Does that make sense, guys? That's what I'm calling you to. Only the Holy Spirit could empower this in us. We can't do this on our own. So we have to trust the comforter that Christ left us, who lives within us, who seals us to make this happen. Let me just take one or two questions perhaps, um, and then I'll just want to give you as a summary as we close. Are there maybe one or two questions that came in? Is there a difference in mentor and disciple? My personal opinion is the only difference is if the end result is different. So if someone's mentoring you, but the end result of that is multiplication, I would say that's discipleship. That's really the qualifying difference between discipleship. You might use the word coaching. You can use the word mentoring. I think that's the difference. So if, if it's just a matter of terms and language, I wouldn't let that trip you up. Uh, don't let terms and language, as good as they can be at times, I think they're important, don't let them be a hurdle to getting the job done. So if someone says, hey, can you mentor me in, you know, this habit or this area? And the goal is that you then would kind of become somewhat of a, a person who could help someone else. That's just discipleship. Yeah. Uh, if the goal isn't multiplication, if it's just like I'll help you and then you can be done, I would pay that just, I guess that's just mentoring. 
So does that help a little bit? There is a difference, but if the end goal is multiplication, replication, then there's really no difference at all. Is there one more? Did you say building a relationship was a start? Uh, yes, it's how we start this whole thing. And it seems, this person says, it seems like sometimes conversations stray off subject of following God to some personal discussions about ourselves and we get sidetracked. Let me encourage you with this. If someone's asked you to disciple them, I think this question is coming from someone who says that they've been asked to disciple and yet they keep getting off track in their discussions. You know, it just takes some time to build those relational chips, okay? And so in your mind, you may be thinking, well, let's just dive in. Genesis 1-1, John 1-1, whatever. Here's the book, let's study it. And, you know, nothing about your life, no personal stories, no how are you, I'm doing fine. We just got to get right to that. You, you may be kind of overestimating the relational nature uh, or underestimating the relational nature of this deal, okay? So I would give that some time and try to establish some, some chips through just talking about how things are in life first. This is why this is a process that takes time. In Christ's situation, three years. There's a lot of discussion at some point in that. And so if you find yourself like you think you're getting off track, be willing to bring it back on track, yes, but, but I wouldn't be afraid um, just to spend some time getting to know them and them you. That is how things start, is in a relationship. And you've got to have some foundation for that, okay? If... As that progresses, there's never a desire to stay on track, then you've probably got a deeper issue. You can address that with a relationship. But uh, I would encourage you to take the time to begin by just getting to know them and them you as well. Um, as we close today, I just want to bring one verse to your attention. Okay? It's in 1 Corinthians, and this is a good summary for what's going on here. Because what we see happening in Christ's life is they follow Christ. Christ entrusts the mission to them. They get others to follow them. They entrust the mission to them. And then it just repeats itself. This is exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I've been amazed by this verse most of the week. Because it almost sounds arrogant. I mean, it almost sounds spiritually proud. But notice the train of imitation in these verses that really model for us what we've just seen in the book of Mark. Paul says to them, I'm not writing to make you ashamed. And of course, in the book of 1 Corinthians, he covered a lot of subjects that he had to kind of deal harshly with, sternly. But he said, I'm admonishing you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. In other words, you may have someone who's not got a relationship but I'm one with a relationship because I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's the centrality of the word, creating a relationship between the Corinthian believers and Paul as they came to Christ through the gospel. And so he says to them, I'm like a father, not just a, like a tour guide. I'm like a, a father to you, so be imitators of me. Like, wow. You would think you would say, so imitate Christ. But he actually says, imitate me. Later he says, imitate me as I follow Christ. But isn't this just incredibly, at least at first glance, I'm almost like, wow, Paul, who do you think you are? But he knows the power of a modeling uh, relationship. He knows the power of, of an environment where there's time to follow someone and do what they do. And he's saying, so just follow me. 
And if you'll imitate me, you will be obeying Christ. But watch what happens next. Because you may wonder, well, how are they going to follow Paul? How do they imitate him? He says, this is why I sent you Timothy. Now catch that. He sent them Timothy so that they could know how to imitate him. Did you catch that? That's what the phrase, this is why, refers to. Why did Paul send Timothy? So that they could know how to imitate him. Do you see the three uh, linked chain there? Paul wasn't in Corinth, but he sent Timothy, my beloved, and look at this next phrase, faithful child. He's called that in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Because he will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. This is a crazy verse. Paul said, I want you to imitate me. I can't be there, so just listen to Timothy because he is doing everything that I would do. So if you'll follow Timothy, that'll be like following me. It will be good. (laughs) And these verses just describe the power, the exponential power of a discipleship environment. And church, I want to call us to that to having this kind of mindset that it's a timetable transfer of transformational truth to the extent that we could eventually say, I'll just use my son. I can say to someone, well, just you, I'm going to send Brett so that you will know how to do what I would do. You would think that sounds arrogant, like it sounds proud, but it's just discipleship happening. He knows my heart so well, I have full confidence he'll relay that heart to someone over there And when I'm off the scene, someone can say, well, here's what Brett would do. I can assure you he would do that. And we just, the train keeps going. It's just imitation. This is discipleship. Christ modeled it, and let's embrace it for the exponential progress of the gospel. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.